3: Yes, it does. Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm not Melissa. I'm Brian. Welcome. Good to have you with us tonight. In your trader lineup, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, Mike Coe, and Pete Nigerian who's co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. All right, tonight on Fast, the Chart Master sounding the alarm on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and gold. Carter Worst says all three may be at critical junctures and big moves could be coming to lay out the key levels that you need to watch plus buckle up Rivian taking investors on a joyride of a lifetime that stock up another 15% today and half the traders tonight own the stock so are they selling it locking in a little profit later on we are drilling down on the energy trade because I'm here so of course we are we get your pens ready because Goldman Sachs out with a list of top picks in the oil patch. We are going to bring you some of those names straight ahead. Welcome, everybody. There is a lot more to do in the next hour. But let us begin with that age-old countdown to Christmas. Just about 38 days left to get all of your holiday shopping done. And while there may be plenty of reasons to be worried about the consumer, from rising inflation to supply chain concerns to whether that favorite toy will be on the shelf, judging by today's earnings reports, all hope may not yet be lost. Walmart beating expectations on the top and bottom lines and raising its forecast for the year, saying its sheer size is helping it manage the macro headwinds. I guess the question is, then, why didn't the stock rise? Well, Home Depot also exceeding expectations, saying same store sales rose more than 6 percent and the customer's average ticket rising nearly 13 percent. Everybody, it seems, is buying a home or fixing up the ones they already live in. So as we gear up for more retail reports this week, should we expect more cheer for investors over the holidays or has the inflation story not yet hit? Karen, start with you. What do you think?
4: I think there is more cheer to come. I thought those retail numbers were really, really strong. So that was great. So the ticket uh, so uh, for Home Depot was up. I think maybe for Walmart as well. So that was great. One thing that I really thought was pretty bullish was capacity utilization, which actually beat. And it just barely surpassed the peak in February of 2020. So we're all the way back now. So that I, I think that was really supply constraints. So hopefully that's improving. And I think that for a little while, we're, we have a little bit of runway before we hear something from the Fed. So I'm, I'm always long, but I'm kind of optimistic as well.
3: Okay, I'm going to go back to Karen for one second and then go around the horn. And Karen, I'm going to follow up with you because I said I talked about the inflation trade. But here's the thing. These numbers were undeniably good. But these numbers are from the third quarter. People buying stuff in July, August and September. If you know the retail world, those things were put on the shelf six months ago. They were paid for six months ago by the vendors, most likely. So the inflation trade, the higher costs haven't really hit the retailers or the consumer yet. Are you worried about first quarter or second quarter of next year?
4: Well, I think the inflation trade for some retailers, it's really going to be a good thing, right? If you have a great brand, if you're Lulu or if you're Chipotle, um, then you're really going to do well, because even though your costs are going up and then maybe there's a little bit of lag, even though your costs are going up going forward, your ability to price that, into your product and actually earn more gross margin, not just the amount that your costs went up, but more than that, that's a really good thing. If you're somebody like a Kroger, that's going to be a lot harder. So it's going to be a, a tale of two retailers. And I think that we'll start to see that. I, I think that for right now, the co- consumers flush with cash and they, you know, the reopen trade is there and they want to be out there and spending. But to your point, what happens when they've gone through the burn through that sort of cheaper inventory? You mm-hmm. have a good brand. You'll be fine.
3: Yeah, because, Pete, as you know, if you're down there, at your local Target, you know, in the Nicolay Mall, you know, doing channel checks. You know, <laughs> you're going to hear you're going to hear strong numbers. But what about next year? We got yeah. targets numbers out tomorrow. We got, by the way, the CEO, Brian Cornell, exclusive on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. Plug for them. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? of? for for Target, (laughs) and are there any other retailers, Lowe's, Home Depot gets all the love, any other names that you are keeping your
2: eye on?
0: You know, I think you can have a bit of a read-through, and I think that's why we were seeing the reaction today in Lowe's that we were seeing, which was it was following along with Home Depot pretty nicely, Brian. I think when you look at the Home Depot numbers, they're absolutely extraordinary. I mean, across the board, including their gross margins, which were down very, very fractionally, uh, compared to last year. So that was, I think, what stood out for me between the difference between what was Home Depot was doing and what Walmart was doing. Their gross margins, that was impacted. That was a problem. They didn't pass that along. They didn't have the pri- pricing power. So to Karen's point, I think it comes down to who has pricing power and who doesn't? Who has the best opportunities in front of them within their store to be able to you know, capture the markets that everybody's chasing after? I think Target does have that because of the fact that it's not exclusively really... Uh, going into the the direction of being a grocer, which is 50-plus percent of what you're looking at at Walmart. That's what makes it so difficult for Walmart is because of that fact, they get already razor-thin margins there. Then you've got the rest of the store, but it's only 50 percent of the rest of the store. With Target, it's about 20 percent. I think names like Target and potentially TJ Maxx and some of the rest – actually are sitting there almost in a position where they, they should be able to execute and win. We'll see if that's the case. I think we're in for some pretty big numbers. When I mean, you look to September, retail sales were up about eight-tenths of a percent Now you look in October, and they're up 1.7% and beating significantly from what the estimates were. I think that states a lot about what people are willing to do and how much they're willing to spread that money around.
3: Yeah, Grasso. I mean, Morgan Stanley out of a note today saying that, that retail sales, the headline number, by the way, 21% higher than pre-COVID, February of 2020. Now, February tends to be a slow month because everybody spent all their money for the holidays. But these numbers are so huge, you just wonder literally how long can these extraordinarily good times for retailers and maybe the consumer last?
5: Yeah, So, so Brian, everyone is flush with cash right now, right? So if, if you are looking to buy uh, gifts for loved ones, friends for Christmas, you started shopping months ago because the supply chain woes was known months ago. But the problem is, as you get closer to the holidays, you're going to still buy. And the reason is the supply chain is probably uh, going to be easing. We've heard that from uh, the automakers. We, we've heard that from a host of other companies that it's not getting dramatically better but it's not getting any worse so what does the consumer do you continue to spend money uh, going into christmas i think to uh, karen's point you have that last push of of these deep pockets being spent in the retail world and it is to pete's point pricing power i'm long capri holdings because it's the high-end buyer last night when courtney host hosted she brought up tapestry Both of those stocks have done dramatically better than a lot of the other names in the retail space. But a Macy's is up 187%. That makes everything else pale in comparison. But I don't think you should be a buyer of Macy's up 187%. I think you should be a buyer of the ones that have pricing power, the Capris, the Tapestry. Target looks like it's double top, but it looks like it's going to actually break through. Walmart was a double top and broke down.
3: Yeah, Capri, I mean, parent company Michael Kors and others said a nice comeback off its lows to that point. Michael Coe, uh, either on the equity or the options side, either the big names or maybe the mid-sized players like Steve is so rightly laying out. Are there any retailers that you are watching you, you think are still undervalued, overvalued or just like the options activity?
2: Uh, well, I think a lot of names are probably, shall we say, fairly valued. I mean, taking a look back at the Home Depot earnings, you know, obviously we did see that uh you know, sort of headline ticket uh, level rise considerably. But, you know, they did say on the conference call that a portion of that increase was the result of price increases. Now, they don't break that out. And, of course, that might also be one of the reasons that Karen is interested in capacity utilization, right? Because we're trying to figure out when we see these sort of headline revenue figures that are obviously very good and we see margins sort of keeping up and they also attributed the slight margin compression at Home Depot to the product mix and of course we're going into a seasonally very strong time for them one important point Pete mentioned Lowe's you know Lowe's is a little bit different animal I would say than Home Depot Their you know their sales per square foot has always lagged and basically their consumer mix is also considerably different Home Depot Uh, caters much more strongly to professional customers. I think at one point, I didn't actually catch whether they mentioned it on this conference call, but in the past, you know, we're talking about uh, maybe 40% of their sales coming from professionals. And I think there's a lot of pent-up demand there, not just Mm pent-up on the consumer side, but also there's been a lag in terms of when professionals have been able to deliver services. The other thing is, In terms of cost of goods on the shelves, you know, if we're looking at something like Home Depot or Lowe's, let's remember that some of their costs actually have decreased somewhat since the peak that we saw earlier this year. Take a look at lumber prices, for example, which obviously went crazy, but those have come in quite considerably. But I think it's important to take a look. If you go back to 2019, you compare what the prices are right now in terms of lumber. You look back to uh, 2018, which was actually a relatively high-paced quarter if you go back for a couple decades. These are still some pretty high prices, and I'm not completely confident that inflation isn't ultimately going to be a hamper on retail.
3: Well, let's, uh, Mike, good point. Let's talk about that with our next guest. And he suggests consumers will not let inflation dampen their holiday spirit. Steve Sadov is the former chairman and CEO of Saks. He's now a MasterCard senior advisor. And Steve, no doubt, listening intently to this conversation. I hope my point about retailers and their timelines made some sense because, as you know better than anybody out there, if I bought something at Saks in August, Saks didn't buy that in late July. They probably paid for it back in April or May. So much was priced out before inflation really hit. Third quarter, maybe not that great of a representation about costs. Are you worried about what we're seeing now hitting margins and pricing three and six months from now?
6: Well, good to hear from you, Brian. And I'm worried, look, I feel very good about the consumer right now. The consumer shopping growth is in the double digit range versus two years ago. We're seeing a healthy holiday season. The MasterCard spending forecast is for 7.4% for the growth for the holiday season. Thanksgiving week at 10%. The consumer and the numbers today were very, very compelling. The question that you're raising is a longer term one. You're right. The goods that are being bought shop today were bought earlier. However, consumers paying a higher price partly because there's less discounting. Remember, because of the supply chain issues, you have probably five to 10 percentage points less promotion than you did year ago. You could have higher prices down the road, but if you have more promotions going on, the net effect on the consumer wouldn't be any different. So it's not just a question of the input price being paid, it's the amount of promotion and the net realized price that the retailer's getting. I think that right now we have a situation where it's a little bit of Goldilocks for the retailers, because as Karen said, the brands that have pricing power and that are able to pass on the cost through to the consumer are getting better margins. You're seeing some of the best margins I've seen in a long time. So you have good margin capability for those brands that have pricing power. They're going to continue to have supply chain cost increases. But if they're able to pass them through, like the examples you used of Capri or uh, tapestry, and there are a lot of others, the consumer is going to, uh, and right now it's showing that they're willing to pay the price. They have money in their pockets, The whether it's at the low end because of the government support, the rise in the wages, or the higher end because of the strength of the stock market. And the stock market gains, there's enormous correlation between the high end market in terms of the luxury consumer and the performance of the stock market. So I feel really good for the very near term. I think as you get into next year, you're going to have government support overlap. You're going to have a little bit more in the way of headwinds. But the next six weeks, I think, feel very good about the holiday season.
4: Steve, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on. So another headwind I was thinking about is, you know, millennials are sort of the biggest buying group. They used to like to do experiences and services, maybe more than buying things. But that hasn't been, you know, as relevant during the pandemic. We're coming out of that now. Do you see them shifting those dollars away from things back towards services?
6: You know, I think, Karen's it's an e- extremely interesting question because during the pandemic, everyone was nesting. They were staying at home and they were buying groceries or home improvement, focusing on the stay at home activity. And if they were buying apparel, it was probably athleisure sweatpants. Now, as you're into the back reopening of the economy, and the experiential, so restaurants are growing in the 30% range, apparel growing 50%. I mean, these are remarkable numbers in the reopening, but what you're finding is that those categories that were growing during the pandemic, use the numbers coming out of a Home Depot this morning, the home, the hardware, the grocery are continuing to hold up. So what's surprising is that it's not a fall off of one versus the other, it's one and the other. Look at the e-commerce. E-commerce grew 50 percent during the pandemic. You're not seeing e-commerce going down. You went from 12 percent of commerce to 18 percent of, co- of commerce, but it's still growing yeah. seven or eight percent versus the lower the higher number. So it's a, it's not either or it's either. And
3: quickly before I let you go, Steve, any company you think right now is just absolutely killing it and maybe not getting the love they deserve?
6: oh, I don't want to play on individual companies. I think the big box guys who are playing omni-channel are doing a terrific job, and I think they're going to continue to do really well.
3: I think we might be able to figure some of those names out. Steve Sadov, we appreciate it. Thank you. We'll see you again. Thanks. All right. So let's go around the horn and trade this. Uh, Steve Grasso, you heard that. I mean, I heard you talking about you know, Capri Holdings, the, you know, not the island, the parent company of Michael Kors and some others. Did anything Steve have to say change your mind?
5: Uh, A little bit, and and, you know, it's it's not really changing my mind. It's reinforcing the fact that he thinks that the next or lead up the next couple of weeks. I think I think specifically, he said six weeks. He feels pretty good about, and I and I agree with that. Everyone's waiting for the other shoe to drop, and we keep passing this buck uh, a little bit further. But you know, it's interesting when you did his intro. It makes me think about Mastercard and Visa, and they're struggling to stay positive on the year as far as year-to-date performance. But when you look at American Express, it's up 50%. So what we didn't talk about was the buy now, pay later. And I think that's really having, whether it's perception, reality, or both, it's having an impact more on these debit names versus credit names, like a name like American Express. And with travel coming back, Brian, and corporate travel, and maybe people are taking trips to Capri, maybe you want to be a buyer of American Express even up 50%.
3: Maybe you can buy a Capri, the 1970s sports car from Mercury. Who knows? Just be careful with buy now, pay later, because those, those $10, $50 a month charges can add up. All right. Kramer is breaking down today's earnings report from Walmart. He lays out the magic number to watch to buy any pullback. You can read all about it in today's CNBC Investing Club newsletter. Sign up now cnbc.com slash investing club or use that thing right there, that QR code on the side of your screen the right, Meantime, things are heating up in the courtroom battle between Barry Diller and Tinder co-founder Sean Rad. Julia Borston here now with an update on that case, which has been filled with a lot of uh, bad feelings, shall we say, Julia?
1: Well, let's just say the battle between t- Tinder co-founder Sean Rad and Barry Diller, he's the chairman of IAC Match. That battle continued today with Rad returning to the stand. He and his fellow plaintiffs allege that Match Group undervalued Tinder back in 2017. Now, just to be clear, at issue. Was a 2017 valuation, not 2015, as I said earlier today. Now the plaintiffs are asking for two billion dollars in damages. Today, Rad's questioning focused in on the calculation of Tinder's valuation. Rad saying that Match gave the incorrect information to the bankers, adding that some of Match's own internal valuations of Tinder were as high as 11.75 billion dollars in 2016. That's much higher than the $3 billion valuation assigned to Tinder the following year. Now, this all comes after yesterday, Barry Dillard tried to discredit RAD's calculation of Tinder's value. Tomorrow, RAD returns to the stand and the trial continues. Brian? All
3: right, big stuff there, Julie Borson. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, Peloton shares having a rare day higher lately after watching the wheels come off recently. But are things finally getting better at what may be the ultimate stay-at-home stock? Plus, is there no stopping the Rivian run? The stock booming up every single day since the IPO. The market cap almost now bigger than GM or Ford combined without delivering hardly any cars. So what do you do if you own the stock now? We're going to let you know next. Get on your bikes and ride. Peloton finally having a positive day. Shares really have had the wheels come off recently, and investors who bought near the highs in January could be down nearly 100 bucks a share. The company today is selling its own stock, raising capital. That move comes just 12 days after Peloton said it really didn't see a need to do that. Karen, your thoughts on the news, the company, the stock?
4: Yeah. So given that they said that so recently, what happened? What happened in the interim? Did they start to be really concerned about their situation? I don't know if people knew the stock was going to be offered. It seemed like yesterday it started to trade down. Maybe they had an inkling this was coming. And so they were shorting in front of it so they could buy on this print. And then that sort of cleared the air. I don't know. I, if, as a, I'm not a shareholder, but I wouldn't be happy with that. I mean, they could have raised money so many other times at so much higher prices. To me, it's as what, what went wrong or do we really fully know the extent of it? So it's great. I mean, you know, it bounced $7 off. They sold it. It's 46 I believe, was the price. That's the low, <laughs> as you said, almost $100 off the, for the year. Not a great job by them, but... All that being having been said, better to have the cash when you need it than not, even if you're mildly yeah. embarrassed. Question well, Mike, is How badly is they need the cash? I yeah,
3: fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. you know, can I borrow? I'll, I'll pay you twenty bucks for a hamburger today or whatever. I mean, Mike, <laughs> if you're if you're raising capital, what is it saying to your investors?
2: Well, you know what's interesting. You know what we saw the stock do today is something that we've seen in a couple other instances where you know you've seen some weakness in a stock and then. They announced that they're going to do a secondary. Shareholders are being diluted, and yet the market seems to respond very positively to the news. What does that tell you? It tells you that the market was actually concerned about their cash position going into that news and that they're relieved that something is being done about it, even if what's being done was exceptionally poorly timed. This isn't a name that I owned or have owned or, frankly, have much interest in owning, because to me, if we are going to have a little bit of a reopening trade, It seems less likely that the benefit is going to go, even if it's going to be more in terms of service providing, which I know is increasingly a part of their business model rather than just the sale of very expensive devices. But, you know, to me, I think this is one I wouldn't touch.
3: Well, unfortunately, the stock has wiped out 18 months of gains, literally back to prices not seen since mid-May of 2020. All right, let's move on. Apparently, bikes are out, cars are in. Look at Rivian. Shares rallying for a fifth straight day, up another 15%. It has doubled since the IPO. It has never seen a down day. Of course, it's only been around for a couple of days. But, Steve, you got in on this name early on, all right? Maybe doubling your money if you got it at the IPO price. <laughs> are, you, are you selling any to lock in some profits? Are you adding more at these prices? What do you make of Rivian? You know, I, I tweeted today,
5: every time I, fee- every time I look at the stock price, and we come in, you, you want to you sort of have some reality set in and say, I have to lock in some profits. And I, I, I feel as if Pete probably feels the same way. We were both on air the, the day of the IPO. Whenever I see that Amazon backstop of, of owning 20% of it or the Ford at 13%, you know, you could argue over whether Ford's going to stick around or not stick around. But... Amazon's going to stick around. And Amazon, in my opinion, is going to backstop it. And Amazon is going to always be a source of funds. Uh, you know, not, not to say that it's, this, is a, this is a sure bet. I do believe the stock will eventually come back in. I'm about 60 65% full on a position. I've been waiting for a pullback as well. I have not sold a share yet, Brian. But yeah. anyone who says that it's overvalued, how many times could you have said that with Tesla. And I believe <laughs> Kathy Wood, number one holding in Ark nation yeah. is Tesla. So, of course, she thinks it's overvalued.
3: Well, it's but it's hard to compare to Tesla because Tesla started out small. Tesla is now it's by the way, this segment not brought to you by Fiji Water. I just happen to enjoy it. Uh, Pete, Tesla started off with people <laughs> doubting its ability to stay in business. Now, of course, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Rivian's getting the Tesla put or whatever you want to call it because you're like, oh, my gosh, look at this. Lucid just got named car of the year by Motor Trend. I mean, they couldn't lust over that car enough. But (laughs) Rivian is now $20 billion from being worth more than GM and Ford Mm -hmm. combined and I think has delivered like zero cars or five or something like this.
0: Right. And you're going right directly with all the facts. And you're right. I mean, that's exactly what we're looking at here. But I think the people are looking more towards the future, just like they were with Tesla, quite frankly. I mean, there was there was always the debate of whether or not Tesla had enough the financing. And there, a lot of people were concerned about that. And they managed to be, be able to navigate through that for a really long period of time. But I think the difference here is, to Steve's point, and we've talked about this a couple of times now, where Amazon with that backstop with 20 percent. And oh, by the way, they're also the ones that are going to continue to order. They've not only ordered, but I think they will continue to order and have these as their vehicles for delivery. So I think that built-in aspect of it right now is really, really important. I think if I were Ford, now I I hear a lot of other commentary about this, but I don't know why that they would be in any kind of a hurry at this point in time just to get rid of their shares. I think that to Steve's point, yeah, at some point we're going to see a little bit of a pullback. Steve's maybe looking to add a little bit more stock uh, on something like that. But I can't see why Ford right now would want to be able to exit. I think that they would want to hold on and see what kind of a ride that they're going to be able to get with this vehicle. Uh, Well, with this company, rather, along with what we've seen already. And I think that Amazon backstop, that is huge for me, Brian. That really is. The options, by the way, are trading at 200-plus implied volatility. So against the shares that I own, I'm going to probably start selling options against that that are way out of the money and try to collect some premium along the way to kind of give my pro- my price a little bit of a lower end that I got into the stock.
3: Okay, good strategy there. But save it for options action, 5.30 p.m. on Friday. By the way, the average price, I'm, I'm looking down on NBC News story, I just retweeted $4.68 a gallon is the average price for regular unleaded in California. Might push a lot of people to the electric car. So all right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here is what is coming up next.
0: Crypto carnage, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all feeling the pain. Carterworth is hitting the charts to find out where these coins are headed next. Plus, time for some energy. Goldman laying out their top picks in the space. So which name should you fill up on? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in
8: Times Square. We're back right after this. Summer.
3: All right. Welcome back to Fast Money. I got some bad news it's the end of the world because Bitcoin fell below 60,000 at one point today. All the major cryptocurrencies retreating from their all-time high. But now the chart master says that the space and even gold is at a critical juncture. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Joining us now with more, Carter, what do the charts, what do the technicals say?
9: Well, before we get to the charts themselves, obviously uh, this kind of move, while dramatic, is not dramatic for crypto. So In and of itself, I wouldn't read too much into today. But when we do look at the charts, we'll see that we are at a critical juncture. And um, from here, it's going to be important that we hold certain trend lines. Let's start with Bitcoin. So what you see is a very clear setup. We know that it's a well-defined trend. And we know that Bitcoin has bounced off that trend line to the penny repeatedly. And you see that sort of flat top, the highs of April, all-time highs, at 65,000. And then we were able to break out ever so slightly. Now, there are false breakouts in markets. And what's important from here is, if and as this weakness continues, that it holds that trend line. That trend line comes into play at, at 50,000. That's down some 17%. And while that's a lot for an individual stock um, or commodity, it's nothing for Bitcoin. My hunch is that it will hold the trend line and that we are headed there. Look at Ethereum. Here's the thing. It's the exact same pattern. And that circumstance is not unique to crypto. We see this in stocks and currencies and indices all the time, where you have a good uptrend, where the instrument in question sells off to trend and bounces to the penny. And then it attempts to exceed a prior high. Often these are double tops, and uh, that is to be determined. Or it's a tentative breakup that ultimately leads to a bigger breakup. But here, too, what's critical is it holds trend. And so the little bit of weakness is underway. In this case, it's 3580 where the trend line comes into play. And then finally gold, which obviously is uh, on a sort of week over week basis, especially in the context of a very strong dollar, is both outperforming Bitcoin and Ethereum. Gold has broken above uh, the, uh, the downtrend line of those two converging lines. You can call it a wedge, you can call it a triangle. What it represents is equilibrium. And gold has had an important move up and out of that formation of the three day to day of the three, the days ahead, I think gold's your winner.
3: Wow, gold's the winner, Carter, thank you very much. All right, uh, Karen, what do you make of the pullback in crypto? What do you make of Carter saying that gold may be a better bet than crypto?
4: I believe that could be the case. I, on the other hand, belong crypto. I mean, it's obviously, as he said, it is very volatile. Uh, If you look at what it's done over its entire life, but certainly over the last year, It's really volatile. You have to believe in part of the fundamental thesis, which I do, about institutional adoption, about the fear of fiat currencies um, and, um, and digital currencies as well. Just that's the way the world is headed. I believe all of that. And I know that this is the riskiest thing that I own. And I'm willing to do that. You have a small portion of the portfolio in it. But I believe in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency story. I've never quite gotten gold. It seemed to me have sort of failed in its attempt to be a both an inflation hedge, a deflation hedge. I don't know. I don't get it.
3: Yeah, you, you, it seems like Grasso. You either get gold, and you really get gold, and you love gold, or you just kind of ignore it altogether. Chime in on that. Chime in on crypto. Chime in on whatever you want, Steve.
5: <laughs> so, so the the problem is is that if gold's going to be the winner, then I think you want to play the miners because we've spoken about this on the desk, that the leverage is buying the miners because the move, whether it's up or down, is three to one uh, in beta when you buy like a GDX, uh, an ETF for the miners. As far as Bitcoin, the move, you know, I I do believe that one day we're going to be looking at a $250,000 a coin on, on Bitcoin. But I think Tom Lee's assessment of 100000 is probably within uh, the, the, the grasp of reality. He has it by year end. So even if he's wrong, no one's going to hold him to it if it's, if it's the first or second quarter of 2022. But I don't know if you're really in that mindset like Karen is to have a small portion of the portfolio in a crypto if you're really going to go back
3: to the gold standard, if you will. Well said. Steve, thank you very much. All right, coming up, Goldman laying out some red-hot trades in energy, naming the names they say you need to load up on now. We're going to lay them out for you. Plus, chips galore. We're surrounding the semi-space as we gear up for NVIDIA earnings tomorrow. We'll dive into that trade in just a few. Don't go anywhere. Fast money live from the NASDAQ and Times Square. He's back in two minutes. Hi, right, welcome back. We have got a news alert out of Washington DC. Let's get now to Elon Moy with the latest. Alon.
1: Well, Brian, the Treasury Department is out with a new projection of when it will hit the debt limit. That date is now December fifteenth. Instead of December 3rd, nearly two weeks later, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent this information to Congress in a letter just moments ago. And this new timeline is important because the deadline for raising the debt limit no longer coincides with the deadline for funding the government, which runs out of money on December 3rd as well. Now, this could give lawmakers a little more breathing room on both of those fronts, especially since there has been zero progress toward finding a compromise between Republicans and Democrats to raise the debt ceiling. But again, now Treasury projecting that it has until December 15th before reaching that debt limit. Brian, back to you.
3: All right, Elon Moy, big news there. Thank you, Elon. Appreciate it. All right, so this bizarre sort of topsy-turvy year known as 2021 just continues to confound and amaze because despite all the focus on renewables, Bank of America reports that traditional energy funds posted their biggest inflows ever last week. Oil and gas. Getting some love as oil and gas prices both rise to nearly decade highs. Energy, by the way, the top performing sector in the S&P 500 so far this year. And the run for some may not be done. Goldman Sachs out with a couple of names this morning. It thinks can go higher, making the cut names like Phillips 66, Baker Hughes, Pioneer. They also like services companies like Chambresay and Halliburton as well. Or a few other names on that ExxonMobil, Pete, as far as a demand recovery type story. Mm -hmm. Many of these names have nearly doubled. Are you a buyer or a holder of any of these companies?
0: I am. Um, I was overloaded, Brian, for too long, probably, in the energy patch. And it all started almost exactly a year ago. It literally was the start of November last year. We started to see a lot of option activity coming into just about everything there. And we continue to see that rolling, 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 although it slowed down. I would say this. It's interesting that that we're talking about this because Energy in the options world has absolutely slowed down, almost to a trickle from where it was. So I still have plenty of exposure, but I cut back on a lot of it. I have Marathon Oil. I have Marathon Petroleum. I have those for beta, like Steve was talking about, with the miners as far as gold's concerned. So you want to have some of those beta names. But names like Exxon Mobil and Chevron, I own Chevron as a stock, Exxon as, as options. I just look at those names. You talk yeah. about free cash flow and we talk about demand coming back. All of those reasons uh, are are why I still want to hold on to some of these, but I've had to trim back a lot of them because I've gotten more into the EV space and less into energy.
3: Yeah, I mean, I understand the transition, Mike, but but it's kind of funny because all the focus on Rivian and Lucid and Tesla and EVs and here's oil and gas, dinosaur juice outperforming (laughs) and the stocks are doing well as well. Are you a buyer and owner of any stocks or options?
2: Yeah, I'm a holder of Halliburton. I've held Halliburton for quite a long time, actually. And of course, if you're taking a look at its share price, I mean, we saw some uh, pretty abysmal price action. I think last year it got down to the single digits. It's probably a five bagger, I would guess, uh, at today's closing price off the dead lows of, of last year. But I think it's important when you take a look at a name like this to also remember that it's still trading at about half the enterprise value that the company did at its peak. Now, When energy prices are high, that should stimulate uh, the oil service companies like Schlumberger and Halliburton. That obviously is a tailwind. Of course, when you're trying to focus on North American production as the source of that, then you're kind of hoping uh, that you obviously have a political climate that's going to support that type of activity. I'm not sure that we do necessarily, but I continue to own Halliburton. I think Schlumberger, I would as well.
3: Yeah, we'll see if there's more drilling, Mike, because these companies pop their head up and say we're going to drill more. Investors just, you know, hit them on the head and put them back down the mole hole. We'll see what happens. All right, coming up, we are all about the chips. NVIDIA earnings, they are on deck for tomorrow, and options traders are piling in. We're going to tell you how they are playing the name Fast Money return. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. And are you ready for a new group of really young multimillionaires? It's going to happen because a new rule in college sports now allows student-athletes to sign endorsement deals and get paid for it. In other words, pretty soon, if not already, you're going to have a few 18-year-olds heading back to the dorm room with a couple hundred thousand bucks in the bank, which means they're probably going to need a little bit of financial help. CNBC's senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson is here. She spoke with a few young athletes on their quest financial success.
8: College athletes like University of South Carolina basketball forward Leah Boston are now able to profit from their name, image, and likeness. Sponsorships, or NIL deals, are a new way for these students to earn income.
7: We put in a lot of work helping the school, so I think it's just really great that we can make something off of it now.
8: She hired an agent to negotiate her NIL deals, including one with fast food chain Bojangles. Made a video, an Instagram reel, posted on my Instagram and my Instagram story. Bojangles! As more deals come into play, NFL linebacker Brandon Copeland, an adjunct professor at Wharton Business School, says it's time for college athletes to create a financial game plan.
9: I need all those college athletes who are about to make those checks and about to make that money to understand how your money works and put a budget in place so that you don't get caught without the right amount of money to to be able to pay that tax bill.
8: University of Georgia track and field star turned TikTok influencer Matthew Bowling has over a million followers on social media, grabbing the attention of a major brand, Taco Bell.
6: It's just fun to be a part of it and be able to eat some tacos.
8: His first deal, he says, has been a game changer.
6: This is the first couple months I've been able to make
8: money in my whole life. Bowling says he's working with a financial advisor and his dad to help manage this newfound wealth. Do you feel like you are already CEO of your business?
6: I've been really uh, careful about my brand. I, I do feel like the CEO.
8: Bowling is part of a new wave of young CEOs in college athletics with greater access, opportunity, and responsibility to manage fame and finances, Brian.
3: Yeah, sure. Amazing. And it's so new too. I would imagine many of these kids. And by the way, I would have done the same thing trying to kind of grab the brass ring, get as much money as possible now because could get more diluted as there's more athletes, too, I would imagine.
8: Yeah. You know, that's what I thought, too. But they were so thoughtful, the students that I talked to, about what they wanted to do with their money and what this would mean to their brand long term. All of them want to be professional athletes at some point, and they want to have a brand, a personal brand that lasts. So they're being strategic about their money. They are seeking advice from people who know more than they do, whether it's a financial advisor or a family member. And they're really trying to make some really savvy decisions and invest some of that money, too.
3: Yeah, they can listen to you. Probably a few resources there on cnbc.com. Make it. Sharon Epperson, thank you very much. You know, that D3 croquet scholarship just never paid off for me. All right, let's fast money this up. If you think these college kids should invest their earnings in the market, which guys, one stock or one ETF, they got, you, got, you get a million dollar check from whatever Under Armour, you can buy one thing. Steve, what would it be?
5: Yeah, so the key is you want to diversify and you can't just buy one stock, right? So you have to spread it out and you have to buy where you think the the growth, exactly, the growthiest stocks are. They're going to be located in the triple Qs. Right now, you have Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Nvidia. These are the names that you want to buy for growth. And if you go back 5,
3: 10, 15, 20 years, the performance is outsized. Fantastic. Karen, what would you advise them to buy? One one ping only, please.
4: Yeah, was well, similar to Steve. They got they have so much risk literally in their body that one thing, their performance or their, their you know, physical health. So you got to diversify for me. I would just go I would go wide SPY, buy some spiders.
3: There you go. Mike Coe.
2: Yeah, I think I would go with IVV, which is another S&P 500 variant, but it has very low fees, only three basis points. So I kind of like what Karen's doing. Just keep the fees down.
3: And a man who played D1 college sports and no doubt would have been sponsored by Vidal Sassoon back in the day. Pete, who would you recommend?
0: You know, I am such a huge fan of Warren Buffett. I think he does an amazing job. Those Berkshire B. When I look at Berkshire B and I look at what that really entails, you want to be in what you know. And if you know Apple and you know Bank of America and you know all these various different names that are really the biggest components of what's in there, that's where you want to be. And I think Buffett has built something strong, and they continue to buy back stock. That tells you a lot about what they think about their stock right now.
3: Yep, that might need a little more than, a, than free tacos in a deal. But, uh, but but by the way, a well-diversified <laughs> yes. company, there you go. All right, thank you all very much for playing. All right, coming up, we are counting down to NVIDIA earnings after the bell tomorrow. How options traders are setting themselves up for the Chip giant's report. You're watching Fast Money Live for the NASDAQ. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. We are keeping an eye on NVIDIA ahead of earnings. That's semi-stock reporting after the bell tomorrow. And options traders are lining up on big, bullish bets on the name. Mike, what exactly are you seeing in Qualcomm? Or NVIDIA, rather?
2: Yeah, so uh, NVIDIA right now, the options market is implying a move of about 17 dollars 5 higher or lower. That's about 5.8% of the stock price by the end of the week. That's more than the 4.1% or so that it has averaged over comparable periods of time over the last eight quarters, although the very last quarter it did move nearly 7% in the day before earnings until a couple days afterwards. We did see calls outpacing puts by about two to one. The most active were the November 300 calls. We saw about 16,000, almost 17,000 of those trading for a little over $9 a contract buyers of those are obviously betting that the stock is going to finish the week higher we also saw some institutional buyers of the 305 310 call spread spending about two bucks for a thousand of those so it seems like people are using options to press their bullish bets given the fact that the stock is really not that far off of its all-time highs all
3: right good stuff Mike thank you very much and for more options action of course be sure to tune into the full show that is Friday every Friday 5:30 p.m. Eastern time up next it is your final trade. Time for your final trade. Let's go around the horn. Steve Grasso, kick it off. Apple, the supply
5: chain issue shocked a lot of investors. Now they've absorbed it. I'm looking for new highs in Apple, looking for a breakout. All right, Karen.
4: Yeah, I always say if you go home long, it's the same as buying it on the clothes. I'm going home long, Target earnings tomorrow. I think to Pete's point, the mix will be better for Target and the earnings will be good.
3: Feeling your Target thunder. Pete, what's your final trade then? <laughs>
4: I love that trade with Target.
0: I'm going to give you Merck. I love the C-suite. I love all the things that they're doing right now. This is a company I think is ready to explode to the upside. We had call buying. I like Merck.
2: Yep, and the COVID pill. Mike? Yeah, even with Rivian, it's going to get a little more volatile, but you take that out of its enterprise value. It's trading about four and a half times next year's EBITDA like Ford. Thank you all. I will be here again
3: tomorrow night, but tune in nonetheless. Mad Money with Jim Cramer begins right now. We'll see you tomorrow.